All right, well, if you would turn with me again to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. We're going to read this morning, beginning in Genesis 49 and verse 28. And we'll read through verse 15 of chapter 50. Before we do that, let me mention that this is our next to last message on the book of Genesis. We will finish tonight. The action has slowed down a bit in these last couple of chapters. In fact, our last several studies have been all in the room of this dying man, Jacob, Israel. Now in this passage we will witness his death. We will learn about the embalming of his body and the circumstances of his burial. Now some of you might be thinking, why in the world do we want to study a passage like that? This is hardly an upbeat subject or an upbeat passage. Wouldn't it be far more encouraging and inspiring and helpful to just skip through this and and move on to, to better, happier passages? And my answer to that is fourfold. Number one, every word of Scripture is inspired by God and given to us for our good. There is not one verse in all of the Bible that does not deserve our attention, that does not deserve our study. Every verse is for our good. Second, there are many upbeat, happy passages in the Scripture. And when we come to them, we study them. And Romans 8 is jam-packed with them. And so we are about to spend a lot of time, many months, in some very encouraging passages. But church, it is very dangerous to live only in those happy passages. It is not a well-rounded diet of Scripture to live only in the upbeat verses of the Bible. Indeed, as I hope you will see, even passages like this one about Jacob's death have glory in them. There are important truths that our souls need, even in passages like this. Living only on the happy passages of the Bible is like eating only sweets. It tastes good, but you won't survive that way. Or at least not healthily, you won't. Besides, how often do we find children who refuse to eat a certain vegetable or refuse to eat a certain kind of food because they just know they won't like it, it doesn't look good, and then they actually try it and they find out, hmm, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Can I suggest that many passages in the Bible are like that? That we often look at a passage and on the face of it, it seems boring or depressing or uninspiring. And we we think, I don't need to spend much time on this passage. And yet, if we actually take the time to dig in, 
we find that those passages are not nearly as boring or uninspiring as we had thought. In fact, we find them to be the very opposite of that. I would think particularly of the book of Leviticus, which has a reputation for being a dull book of the Bible, an uninspiring book of the Bible, and yet I have friends who spent an entire year studying that book and came out of it saying it was their favorite book in all of the Scriptures. So you see, don't avoid a passage because it seems uninspiring. Dig into it. There is no part of the Bible that is not rich in glory. Number three. The Bible is a book given to us to serve us in every season of our lives. And real life isn't all mountaintops. Real life isn't all upbeat. There are valleys. There are hard moments. Death, burial. These are a part of our lives. Funerals are a part of our lives. And God is loving us by giving us a Bible that is sufficient and complete, addressing every aspect of our lives, even the realities of death. Then finally, number four, I would simply remind you of Ecclesiastes 7.4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. In other words, there is something about thinking about death that has a tendency to sober people up and to make them wise. There's something about thinking about death that that clears the fog of this world and breaks through to show us this is what really matters. Those people who seldom find themselves in a funeral home, those people who seldom find themselves next to weeping families, they end up with a disconnected and unrealistic view of life. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And so with those things being said, I want to look first at the closing verses of chapter 49. So let's begin chapter 49, verse 28. Verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, at the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave, that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So our verses pick up immediately after Jacob has finished speaking God-given prophecies to his twelve sons. Each of his 12 sons was blessed with a prophecy suitable to that son, given a blessing, though, as we've seen, some of the blessings can 
hardly be called blessings. Some of them were more negative than positive, but each one was a prophetic word spoken over each son about the tribe that would come from that son. And now, with these twelve sons still gathered around his bed, sick, dying Jacob gives them a command. And this isn't the first time we've heard this command. We already saw it at the end of chapter 48. We saw him give this command to Joseph privately because Joseph would be the one in the position to help lead the way and make this come to pass. But now Jacob gives this command to all the brothers together so that they can fulfill it together. And what is Jacob's last command? It is that his sons bury him with his fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. This is the cave that was bought by Abraham, his grandfather, in order to bury Sarah, his wife, when Sarah had died. And you may remember from our study a long time ago, on that passage, Abraham insisted that he pay the full price for that field and that cave. He wanted to make sure that that cave would be in his family for a long time and that no Hittite would have any claim to take it from him. Abraham had come from the land of Ur, but he chose that his wife Sarah and he would not be buried in Ur. They would be buried in Canaan. Because that was the land God had promised to them. Abraham and Sarah, they died in faith, not having yet received what God had promised. But they still believed it was coming. They did not believe that death was the end. Isaac and Rebekah were buried in that same cave, holding on to that same promise. Jacob's wife Leah was buried there. Only Rachel was not because she died while they were traveling. And Rachel was buried near Bethlehem. And so now Jacob insists that though he and his family are now living in Egypt, he is not to be buried in Egypt. He says, take me back home. Take me back to Canaan. Because he is waiting for the day when God will bring about what he promised. A nation of righteousness. A nation where God's people would dwell with God and God with them. And this would be on a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is supposed to last forever and ever. And Jacob says, I'm dying and I haven't seen that promise come to fulfillment yet, but I don't believe that God is going to let me down. This is going to happen. So bury me in Canaan. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have been made a citizen of that kingdom that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob died still waiting for. They may not have even fully understood it, but they had already been made citizens of that kingdom. When they died, they went to be with God into the joy of that kingdom. And then Christ came in the New Testament preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. He, the King, had come to earth to lay the foundation for that kingdom by giving His life as a substitute for the, sinners, for the sins of the citizens. He sent His Spirit into the world and now through the Gospel, the kingdom is being built as people are being won to the Lord Jesus Christ. This kingdom that these men died longing for, it is still being built today. 
And eventually Christ will finish building His kingdom and He will return again. And the new heavens and the new earth will be inaugurated and we will live there with Him forever and ever. If we are His people. But notice how Jacob describes his coming death. He uses this phrase, it's in verse 29. He says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Gathered to his people. That's an important phrase. In fact, it's a phrase that we find used of the patriarchs in Genesis again and again when they die. And it does not mean I am about to be buried with my kinfolk. That might be what we would think it means. It's kind of how it sounds. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Oh, so you're going to be buried with with, with your folks who have gone. No, 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 that's not what it means. And we know that's not what it means because this phrase is first used when Abraham dies. And we're told in Genesis 25, 8, Abraham breathed his last and was gathered to his people. But Abraham's fathers were pagans back in the land of Ur and were buried there. And Abraham was not buried with them. Abraham never went back to Ur and and was put with his forefathers. He and Sarah were buried in a new tomb in a land hundreds of miles from their families. So what did it mean to be gathered to your people? Well, it doesn't concern the body. It concerns the soul. God's people at this point of history did not have as much revealed to them about death and the afterlife as as you and I have had revealed. But they absolutely understood that they were more than just bodies. They knew that they had souls. And they knew that when they died, their souls went somewhere, namely to be with their people. And that is absolutely true, and it's still true today. When we die, our souls go to be with our people. We are gathered to our people. The question is this, who are our people? You see, this isn't a blood relation thing. Remember, at the end of the day, it is not who you are related to by blood that matters. What matters is whether you are one of God's people or one of those who lived and died still in rebellion against Him. If you are still living as an enemy of God, then your people are those who are enemies of God, enslaved to sin, still under the power of Satan, headed towards hell. And the Bible says that your soul will be gathered to those people when you die. But if you have raised up the white flag of joyful surrender and have found peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, then your people are your brothers and your sisters in Christ, saved by grace, dwelling with God, and you will be gathered with them when you die. Jacob was gathered to his people, the people of faith in the true God. This is Genesis' way of saying, he went to heaven. He went into the presence of God. Now, seeing that he was about to die, Jacob commanded that he be buried in Canaan. And I think it's worth noting that Jacob commanded his sons to bury him. Why did he do that? 
Or to put it another way, why do we bury people? Especially as Christians, what, what are we saying when we put a body into the ground? We are saying that we believe what the Bible says about who we are as human beings. That we are not just a body, and we are not just a soul. We are not a soul trapped in a body. We were created to be both body and soul. In the book of Genesis, we read that God both made man out of the dust, that's body, and then breathed into him the breath of life, that's soul, and we are meant to be both. And what happens at death is unnatural. It never should have happened. At death, a person's soul is ripped from their body. So that the two that were meant to be one are split apart. That's the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so it's because of sin that body and soul are separated at death. And if you're a Christian, the soul goes to be with God in heaven. And if you're not a Christian, the soul goes to be in, in a darker place. And the body is left here on earth. But the Bible tells us that that's not the end. God is not finished with our bodies when we die. The Bible tells us that when Christ comes back, every single person that has ever died, their body is going to be raised. And don't put limits on this. I don't mean just those who were buried in graves. I mean even those who died at sea, even those who are in terrible accidents and had their bodies burned. God is fully capable of putting them right back together. In fact, their bodies will be better than they've ever been before, perfected. And for the, those who have been saved, we're told when Christ comes back, those who have gone before, their souls will come back with Him. Their souls will reunite to these perfect, glorified bodies. We will live on a new heavens and a new earth, fully human, fully glorified, made holy both in soul and in body. Why do we bury our dead? We lay the body in the ground to say, it's asleep. Isn't that the language Paul uses, Thessalonians? It's asleep. But there's going to be a day when this body is going to walk again. There's going to be a day when this body lives again. And we believe that. Jacob believed that. He was waiting for a kingdom without end, and he believed he would see it. Abraham, we're told in the book of Hebrews, he was waiting. He would see that, right? So that's how we are to face death, with faith, trusting God and what he has said about our bodies. All right. Look with me at chapter 50 and verse 1. Chapter 50 and verse 1. We've had this command given for burial Jacob breathes his last, and he dies. Beginning in verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming and the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Now just stop there. Why were the Egyptians weeping for Jacob, the Canaanite? And probably the best answer is, it is likely there was an order given by Pharaoh for the nation of Egypt to mourn 
the father of their prime minister, Joseph. Isn't it interesting that in the providence of God, we have this this, this Bedouin tent-dwelling, somewhat obscure man, Jacob, who lived a difficult life. He lived a troubled life, and yet he trusted God. And at the end of his life, God gave this man a great deal of notoriety and honor at his death. Uh, Jacob saw little of this kind of thing in his life, but at death, God honored him by causing the whole of this Egyptian nation to weep for him for 70 days by the order of the most powerful man on planet Earth at that time, Pharaoh. So at, the, at his death, God is making the name of Israel known. All right, keep reading. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and a grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. And therefore the place was named Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Okay, so we, we see here, first of all, the great sorrow of Joseph after his father had died. You remember Jacob and his son Joseph always had a special bond that Jacob for so long didn't have with the rest of his sons. Both Jacob and his son Joseph knew the true God, loved the true God, walked with the true God, when the other brothers did not. Now things have changed. We'll see it again tonight. These brothers are now converted men, but they're still infants in the faith. They're still new in the faith. Unlike Jacob and Joseph who had walked with God through many decades, through many trials. They were always especially knit together in their hearts, and now Joseph especially grieves over his father's body. Then Joseph gives the command for, Joseph's, for Jacob's body to be embalmed. Um, Jacob was mummified. 
make a side note here. If you ever want to study Genesis for yourself, or maybe in teaching a Sunday school class or leading a Bible study, um, there have been several commentaries that have been very helpful to me over all these years. Um, Matthew Henry, of course, is wonderful. Bruce Waltke is excellent. But one that is very readable. Any, any, anybody, you don't have to have a seminary education to read this book and get it. You, this is a great commentary and very helpful. It's, it's by John Currid, and it's two volumes on Genesis by John Currid, and it's, it's excellent. I highly recommend it. Um, but John Currid is also an expert on Egypt, and so let me read to you from him about what it meant that they embalmed Jacob's body. He says, The process of embalming in ancient Egypt became a complex and scientific process during the Middle Kingdom period. It first involved the removal of the internal organs of the deceased. These were played in canopic jars. The body was then treated with natron, a dehydrating sodium carbonate. The skin was treated with resin and with spices. In fact, it ought to be noted that the Hebrew word used here for embalming literally means to make something spicy. And so during embalming, the body is made spicy. The body was then wrapped in many layers of linen. You've seen the the mummies, you know, they wrap them in lots of linen. And then they finally place them in a wooden coffin. By the time of the New Kingdom, this process of embalming, of mummification, became quite refined, and they often preserved the hair and the flesh and even the nails of the deceased. And so that's something what, about what happened to Jacob's body at this point. And we might wonder, why would Joseph give this command for Jacob's body to be embalmed in this way? And I don't think it's because it was just the thing to do in Egypt, but I think it's because of his obedience to his father's command. They're going to take his father to Canaan. And this is going to be quite a journey, and the body needs to be preserved along the way. It would become vile, it would smell, it would be problems if they didn't embalm the body before they took it to Canaan. Now, this may not be the most pleasant thought to think about what happens to a body if you just leave it alone after death. But it actually is a humbling thought. Anytime we begin to get high and lofty thoughts about ourselves, right? It's, look at me, look at who I am, look at how great I am. It's helpful to remember that we are but dust. And that the moment God chooses to bring our lives to an end, these bodies of ours begin to decay Give us a few days and we begin to smell horrid. This is what sin has done to us. Sin is a vile thing that leaves human bodies in a detestable state once they have died. We ought not to forget that sin has done this. Our bodies were created in the beginning by by God and were declared to be very good. This kind of thing was never meant to happen to the human body. Never meant to happen. Except, of course, in the ultimate sovereign purpose of God, that His glory might be seen in salvation through Christ. But see the power of sin in this. And and also consider the difference that a soul makes, right? While your soul is still in your body, your body is preserved. But the moment death rips your soul from your body, separating the two, your body immediately begins to become vile. 
It's just another pointer to the fact that we as human beings were created to be both. And on the last day when Christ returns, death will be no more. Souls and bodies reunited. Christ will have fully defeated physical death. Indeed, physical death is only a temporary reality. Well, the remainder of our verses speak to the fact that Pharaoh was very willing for Joseph and his family to leave Egypt and bury their father. Jacob was honored by Pharaoh in that Pharaoh's own servants and the elders of his household and the elders of the land all took part in this vast funeral procession. The superlatives are used over and over again to show how great this procession was. Right? We, there was a very great and grievous lamentation by a very great company. Right? But Moses wants us to see this was a big deal. This was quite a funeral. We see here Pharaoh's great esteem for Joseph and for his father. Pharaoh's great esteem for these people called Israel. And all of this is preparation for Exodus chapter 1. Remember, Genesis and Exodus were on the same scroll. Genesis and Exodus are part of a five-part book, the Pentateuch. and They're all on the same scroll. And so right after Genesis 50 on the scroll came Exodus chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 50, we see the great esteem of Pharaoh for Israel, sending all of these elders, this great funeral procession. And then we get to Exodus 1, and what's happened? Generations have passed And we read the words, there now arose a new king over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. And we learn that now the people of Israel are being enslaved. Now they are treated harshly. Indeed, the command is given for every male son of an Israelite to be killed at birth. Mount Hermon, how fickle is the praise of men? How fickle is the success and fame of men in this life? It simply does not last. Generations come and generations go. And in the end, your life and my life is just a tiny little speck in this thing called human history. Do not treat the things of this world as if they are eternal. They are not. They are passing away. And if you live for worldly success, if you, look, if you live for positions of honor, if you live for the, the praise of men, in the end they will all go away and they won't mean much. You will be laid in your grave. And within a century or two, will anybody even remember our names? Will our great-great-great-great-grandchildren be able to say much at all about us? Honestly, how much can you say about your great-great-great-grandparents? You see, it doesn't take many generations before we're all but forgotten. Justin, this is the most depressing sermon I've ever heard. (laughs) No, no, it is not, not at all. The reason you need to know these things, the reason we need to confront these things is because God is trying through passages like this to say to us, don't keep drinking from the shallow wells that are broken and won't last. Drink from the one that will last. Don't live your life for things that are passing away. Live for things that matter. This this whole section is like it's doing a Psalm 90 on us, right? 
Psalm 90, the years of our life are 70, even by reason of strength 80. Their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days that the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. In other words, Mount Hermon, I want you to think honestly and truthfully about death because it teaches us that true happiness and true satisfaction in this life is not found in the stuff of this world. And the things that the people of this world value. We live in a culture that values, sits on high thrones, stuff that will not matter a century from now. And certainly won't matter in eternity. Evaluate your life. Where do you find your satisfaction? Where do you find your contentment? Where do you find your fulfillment? Death will separate you from your stuff. Death will separate you from your reputation in this world. Death will separate you from the loved ones you leave behind. But death can never separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Which well are you drinking from? Which one of these are you living in? You see, for the Christian, death is the eagle that takes us up to the very throne room of God. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote this when he was 82 years old. He was one month away from his death, and he knew he was close. He said, it is a great thing to die. What? (laughs) It is a great thing to die. And when flesh and heart fail, to have God for the strength of one's heart as our portion forever... I know whom I have believed, and he is able to keep that which I have committed against that great day. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. Quoting scripture. He's saying it is a good thing to die. I am happy for death because God is my portion forever. And he is able to take what I've entrusted to him, namely my all. And he is able to protect it in the day of death. I know that He will take care of me. I know in the end I will receive a crown of righteousness from my Lord, the righteous judge. What do you have for eternity? What is your hope in death? What matters in your life? Don't you want to face your death saying, it is a great thing to die, or as Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's only one way. Know this God of Jacob. Know Him by trusting His Son, Jesus. Know this God by submitting to Him, loving Him at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. May the reality of death show us how essential and vital it is that there be no greater love in our life than our love for our God. Let's pray.